If you have your Bibles with you, would you open to Psalm 106, the 106th Psalm. Our goal today is to finish the sermon we began last week on a sickly soul. Last week we began to look at this idea, not really an idea, a fact, that there are those who have a sickly soul. Psalm 106, I want to draw your attention to where we started last week and then we're going to just pretty much cover uh, various sections of the psalm as we go. I'll draw your attention to as we move along. But let's go back and read beginning with verse 13. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Last week we looked at the children of Israel, how they deliberately, intentionally ignored God, ceased to care for God, the standards of God, the will of God, the purpose of God. They rebelled against that, they stepped away from that. And in doing so, they developed a leanness of soul, an emaciated soul we spoke of last week. We spoke of the emaciated soul. That is the spiritual state of wanting and weakness. It is the spiritual leanness that comes as a result of our own actions, our own attitudes as we deliberately will ignore God. Last week we looked at some characteristics that... Uh, define or characterize the one with leanness of soul. They oppose the truth in those who speak it. They worship self-made idols. They refuse to acknowledge God's goodness. We spoke of how they despise the provisions of God. They doubt God's promises. They disobey his word. They assimilate into worldly culture and ultimately they defiled before God. This week I want us to look at what the psalmist says about God his response to those with leanness of soul, and those of us who know someone with leanness of soul. So we're jumping right into the middle of the sermon from last week, picking up with point two. Point two begins with the exalted Savior. The exalted Savior. Let's uh, read here, beginning with verse one. Praise the Lord, I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare his praise? The psalmist here puts God in a proper position. Throughout the psalm, in fact, he illustrates how God possesses an exalted character. This isn't just some God. This isn't just a God. This isn't the old man upstairs, or whatever else you want to say. This is the one true God with an exalted, specific position in relation to his creation. Verse 1 calls him the Lord. He is the Lord. If you study that phrase, the reference there is the one true self-existing God. He is the one true God above all that there is. He's self-existing in and of himself. He is God. In this exalted characterization, he's called good. He is good, the psalmist says. That refers to a moral goodness. He is good in character. 
That word good there, if you look it up in the Hebrew, simply means the opposite of evil. The polar opposite of that which is evil. It is a description of a moral purity. The psalmist says we have the one true self-existing God who is completely morally pure. It's speaking of God's perfect holiness. He says when we speak of God here in this psalm, we're speaking of the one true perfectly holy being. Self-existent, all-powerful in and of himself. As we saw last week, you consider the person who has a leanness of soul, and you see that leanness of soul then causes such great anxiety and dissatisfaction because you are removed so far away from the holiness of this God. The psalmist here says he is merciful. His mercy endures forever, the text says. That specific word refers to an unfailing devotion. An unfailing devotion... That is based in the character of God. God is merciful. His mercy endures forever. He has an unfailing devotion simply because of his own character. Not based on what we do, but based on who he is. There's this unfailing, steadfast devotion expressed in a merciful character that is this one true God. So what the psalmist highlights then is God's benevolent mercy in contrast to shameful actions that are committed against him. The children of Israel here, or those in our time with the leanness of soul, who will shamefully act towards God, yet that does not change his benevolent character. He's still a merciful God. What we find is a testimony here of the enduring mercy of God. So much so that that rebellious person who acts with a leanness of soul is not immediately consumed in destruction or taken away by their own actions and attitudes, completely cast away because there's a merciful God who is undyingly devoted, eternally devoted, seeking to draw upon them and call them back. Else they would just be consumed immediately. So we have this one true exalted God with such great character of goodness and mercy. The psalm alludes to the mighty acts of God. He's mighty. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord, verse 2 says. These mighty acts are acts of force and power beyond all that we can imagine. It's force and power that inspires a majestic awe. The mighty acts of God that can't be uttered, they are too broad and expansive to be recounted. This awe-inspiring force of God, this power that can't be fully recounted because, well, we fully can't comprehend with our finite human understanding the magnitude of God's might and His force, His power and His magnitude. God possesses power and ability we simply can't grasp. He's this one true God in this extreme, supremely exalted position. All throughout the psalm, we have... Uh, references that allude to these mighty acts and His wonderful power. The miracles of God in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the providing of the manna, the controlling of elements and of nature, the sovereign power of God to move pagan nations to meet His own will and plan. These mighty acts of God. Yet it's those who have a leanness of soul who willfully ignore God's might or maybe simply cease to care that the God they spurn wields such force and power. The psalmist puts God in this exalted position 
And in this exalted position, he describes two specific elements. The psalmist reveals God in the position of judge and savior. God is the extremely, supremely exalted judge and the supremely, extremely exalted Savior, both in this one psalm. Fourteen times this psalm alludes to the judgment or salvation that God will issue because He holds that exalted position to issue judgment or salvation. The psalmist clearly reveals here that God sets in judgment. God administers wrath, but God also brings salvation. It's all throughout the text. God is the exalted one holding the exalted position of divine judge and divine savior. That's the position the psalmist wants us to understand because then the psalmist begins to describe how does God in this exalted position respond to those who have a leanness of soul. When someone walks away in rebellion, how does God respond from this exalted position he holds? Those who have deliberately ignored his position of authority. Those who have ceased to care for God's divine will. How does he respond? Those who ignore or even despise God's wisdom. Those who would seek fulfillment in worldly lust. Those who would put God to the test by transgressing his holiness. How will God respond? Well, the psalmist tells us. So let's look at that this morning. This exalted Savior, what is his response to those with leanness of soul? Draw your attention to verse 26. Therefore, he, that is God, raises his hand in oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness. Verse 40. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people so that he abhorred his own inheritance. Therefore, he raised his hand in an oath against them. What is God's response to the one who will rebel against who he is, his authority, ignore him deliberately, cease to care about who he is, and walk away? Well, the first thing the psalmist says is this. God raises his hand in opposition. To have a leanness of soul in rebellion to God is to understand that I now exist in opposition to this one true exalted God who holds a supreme position as judge and savior, who holds all power. I now exist in opposition to him. What we see here is that God moved in opposition against his own inheritance, that is his own chosen people, the Israelites. They rebelled and so he moved in opposition to them. He took an oath against him, the Bible says here, that an entire generation would die in the wilderness and never set foot in the promised land. He moved in opposition to rebellion. He moved in wrath against his own people who had committed spiritual harlotry against him. He wasn't flippant about it. He didn't pat him on the head and say, well, whatever. He said, I am the supremely exalted holy God, and I will take action now. He raised his hand in opposition. My friends, those who have a leanness of soul can expect to function in opposition to God. 
Don't rebel against God and then come complain that God just seems to be working against you. Oh, really? You walked away from him and now his hand is raised in opposition to you. That's how it works. In fact, the book of James explains that God opposes or resists those who are spiritually wanting because of their transgression against him. The Bible says there that he opposes those who will pridefully ignore him and his position, his will and his purpose. When I pridefully put myself in God's position, walk away from him and say, God, I don't really care. Should I be surprised when he resists me and opposes me? The Bible teaches he does. The opposition spoken of there in the book of James when James chapter 4 says that God opposes these comes from a Greek word, antitazo. That word means to be set against and originally is used to refer to being set against in battle as if you're at war. It's this idea that you're saying, you want to go to war, God? Because here's the line, and I'm ready. What a foolish attitude to have, but that's literally what it means. In my pride, I rebel against God so that now I'm at war with God. Those who will abide in spiritual weakness, walk away in rebellion, position themselves to be at war with this true, one and only, self-sufficient, almighty and powerful God. And you see it in their lives. They constantly war against God's truth. They're constantly warring against God's will. They're constantly warring against God's sovereignty. At all points opposed to God. And God stands on the other side opposed to them. As we've previously mentioned in this study, those who have a leanness of soul make their own idols, their own elements of worship, that which they seek to worship. And so often, it's themselves, and so they put themselves in a place of worship to usurp God's rightful position. The lean soul will make a religion out of pleasing self and set self up on the throne of the heart as the one to be the ruler at war against the ultimate ruler. What does God do in response to that one who rebel against him? He says, I will stand in opposition to you as long as you want a war against me. And my friends, that is a war we cannot win. As I rebel against God, as I live in a leanness of soul, what I can expect is to be living in opposition to God. That means the withholding of grace from my life, diminished mercy upon my life, exposure to the destructive measures of the life I live, even the destructive measures of Satan. God will not bless my rebellion, and he will not withhold his chastening from my life. If he does withhold his chastening from my life, it means I'm not one of his children. God will remove that protective hand from my life that I can taste the fruits of my rebellion. And in the most extreme situations, the Bible said God will ultimately hand me over to Satan himself. 
That happened in the Corinthian church with a man who was so far consumed with rebellion against God that the Apostle Paul told the church, give him to Satan. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 4. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that in his spirit he might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, hey, you know that guy you have in that church who's so far in rebellion against God? Go ahead and hand him over to Satan. Let Satan destroy him physically, for at least that way his soul will be saved. In the most extreme situations, when I war against God, he says, fine, I'll just give you over to the debaseness of what you want and let Satan destroy it. Those who have a leanness of soul can expect the opposition of God. The psalmist goes on, though. He points out a second response God has here. That is, God gives them over to the consequences of their rebellion. Let me draw your attention to verse 41. And he gave them into the hand of the Gentiles, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjugation under their hand. In response to the rebellion of the Israelites... God gave them over into the hand of the Gentile nations. Those nations ruled over them. They oppressed them. They brought them into subjugation under their authority. God's people willfully and willingly ignored him to mingle in with the pagan nations of the world. So God allowed the world to rule over them. He let them have the consequences of the rebellion. In fact, verse 43 points it out. They were brought low for their iniquity. They were brought low for their iniquity. Here's God's chosen people who rebel against him, who step away with the leanness of soul. And God says, I will let you have the fruits of your actions and your attitudes. Your own iniquity will bring you low. Your own sin will rule you. See, this is a nation of people here who would not submit to God's authority, so he allowed the wicked authorities of those Gentile nations to subjugate them and rule them. They became slaves of the very ones they wanted to mingle with as they rebelled against God. My friends, those who have forgotten God, those who have ignored his wisdom, those who have looked into the world for fulfillment will find themselves ruled by the world and worldly lusts, ruled by worldly wisdom, ultimately ruled by sin. Those who will walk away from God and assimilate into the world, seeking fulfillment in the world and the sins of the world, ultimately God will allow that sin to rule them and they'll find themselves subjugated to the world, ruled by the world, dominated by the world. In John 8, 34, Jesus said, whoever commits sin becomes a slave of sin, and that's what happens. It shouldn't happen for God's children. Romans 6, 6 teaches us that the redemption of Christ means that our old man has been crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We should never be subjugated to a sin, subjugated to the world, yet if we walk away from our Heavenly Father, have a leanness of soul, that's exactly what happens, and it never should, because Christ was crucified that our sin nature could be nailed to the cross, and we wouldn't have to be slaves to sin anymore. 
but we allow ourselves to be subjugated back to sin as we rebel against God. We step away from God, develop a leanness of soul, and one day look up and realize I'm a slave to the sin I'm living in. Continuing that same chapter of Romans in chapter 6, if you keep reading, you come to verse 16, it says, Do you not know that whom you present yourselves to be slaves to obey? That one you must obey as a slave, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. If I will walk away from God to assimilate into the world, seek fulfillment of the world, indulge in the sins of the world, why should I be surprised one day when I wake up and realize I've become a slave to the sin I'm living in? And God says it'll happen. Those with the leanness of soul, what happens is this. They fill their lives with whatever sin it is, and one day they don't ever realize it until it's too late. That sin becomes their master. They're living for the sin. Not themselves. Certainly not for the Lord, but simply for the sin they're in. In Proverbs 14, 14, the Bible says, The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways. That simply means that the fruits of rebellion ripen and you reap the harvest. When you rebel against God, God will allow the fruits of your actions to ripen. And when the time is right, you harvest the fruits of your rebellion, whether you want to or not. You reap what you have sowed. The actions you have lived in come back to dominate you. Those with a leanness of soul, my friends, will find no fulfillment, no lasting peace, no real joy. They only find the fruits of rebellion that fill their lives. Now, it may take a month, it may take 10 years, but the fruits ripen and you bring in the harvest. That's just the reality of it. The consequences, my friends, of our own actions and our attitudes, that's what we reap and it's a bitterness of life. Jeremiah 2.19 Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then... And realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and you have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. See, God says when I will walk away from him and I will deliberately ignore him, when I will cease to care about him and his plan and his wisdom, when I will ignore God, I should consider how evil and bitter my life will be apart from his presence. So I will exist in evil and bitterness whether it's a lost person who has never come to faith in Christ or a child of God who stepped away in rebellion, life becomes evil and bitter. Their existence is bitter. Because when you forsake the Lord, when you walk away from the Lord, when you have no reverence for God, your life is just bitter. And so they exist in this bitter state. Why? Because God has handed them over to the consequences of their own actions the bitterness of their actions. When there's someone who has a leanness of soul, God responds from this exalted holy position of judge. He opposes them, and he lets them taste the fruits of their own actions. But he doesn't stop there. The psalmist continues. Verse 44. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. You know the third thing God does in response to someone with leanness of soul? 
God hears their cry. God hears their cry. See, in the rebellion, Israel had this leanness of soul, but nevertheless, God regarded their affliction. He heard their cry. When the people hit the bottom, when they came to their own senses and realized, we have rebelled against God. It is our sin that has done this. And they cried out in repentance and they offered a plea of deliverance. God was there to hear their cry. Yes, he opposed them. Yes, he let the consequences of their actions fall upon them. But then he waited and listened and he heard their cry. You see, my friends, when that one with the leanness of soul will cry out to God, that one will find God is sitting there ready. He's been listening for that cry. He's been sitting there waiting to hear the cry of repentance and the plea for deliverance, and he's there to listen, and he's there to hear. If you have been walking away from God, I can promise you this. The moment you're ready to say, God, I'm sorry. He's there to hear your cry. And to bring you back. God is there. He's not left. And he's listening. God has not cast you off. He has not given up on you. If you're hearing what I'm saying, it's because God is still there waiting to hear your cry and reach out for you. God is listening for your cry. You could be like David in the 40th Psalm where he says, God inclined unto me, he heard my cry, and he lifted me up out of the pit. Because God is listening to hear your cry. And my friend, there is no pit too deep where God cannot reach you. There is no place so dark that God cannot see you. There is no space so expansive that God will not hear you. God is there. The prophet Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. God is listening for your cry. He'll stand in opposition to you. He'll let the consequences of your actions fall upon you. But he sits there and waits and listens for your cry of repentance, your plea of deliverance. He's waiting for your cry. Those with a leanness of soul, my friends, are only separated from God by their own sin, and God is there. He is waiting. He is listening. Where is your cry of repentance? This bitter existence, this bitter life, the only reason you stay in it is because you won't cry out to God with a heart of repentance. Those with the leanness of soul to be their own pride, their own self-will, their refusal to call out to God, that'll keep them in a pit of bitterness. Because God is there listening, waiting to hear the cry. God is waiting for the rebellious child to simply cry out in repentance and he will take action. There's another response of God we see towards such a person. And that is God remembers his promises he's made toward that person. God remembers his promises. Verse 45, and for their sake he remembered his covenant. The children of Israel rebelled against God. He allowed the consequences of the rebellion to fall upon them. When they finally cried out in repentance, he heard and he remembered the covenant he had made with them so long ago. 
He was still there. He was still faithful to fulfill his promise that he had made. They had walked away from him, but he had never changed. And he was still faithful and true to all he had ever told them. He would not forsake them. He was still faithful to that covenant. Despite Israel's leanness of soul, God had always been there, true and faithful, waiting. And when they cried out, he responded, remembering his covenant, remembering his promise, remembering who they were in relation to him. See, when they repented, they found faithfulness in God. He was still there faithfully. My friends, those who are far away from God, if they cry out in repentance, what they find is a steadfast faithfulness of a loving God who's just been waiting on them to return. Not this vindictive, vengeful God who's going to browbeat them and shame them to death, but a loving Heavenly Father who says, finally, you have returned. I've been here waiting the whole time, steadfast in my love, faithful in my promises. I'm so glad you're home. When the one with leanness of soul will come back to God, what that one will find is that God's promises are still there. He's still true to everything he's ever said. He's true to his own character. His love, his grace, his mercy, it's still there. In fact, what they find is God's mercy played out. That's the next response of God. God applies the multitude of his mercies. Still in verse 45, the second half of that, and he relented according to the multitude of his mercies. Rather than being in opposition to them, he was merciful to them. Rather than the fruits of their, or the, their attitude and their actions, he pulled them back into a place of reinstatement and applied mercy. God relented in chastening Israel and poured mercy upon them when they came to the place of repentance. You see, that's what happens when a person returns to God with a heart of repentance. They experience the multitude of his mercies. God pours his mercies out upon them. His unfailing kindness and devotion bring blessings of mercy. They have otherwise not known in the rebellion, but now they feel their lives. Their cup runs over with these mercies. These benevolent outpourings of God's mercy and goodness, His favor, inundate and flood our lives when we come back with a heart of repentance, abide in His presence. The mercy we could have known all along and the grace we should have been experiencing all along and the blessing that we should have basked in all along, but we forfeited in our rebellion, now are ours as we've returned with a heart of repentance. So rather than this evil and bitter existence, we find grace and mercy filling our lives. Hosea 14.4 God says, I will heal, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away. I rebelled against God. I walked in the leanness of soul. As the Holy Spirit Gave me understanding. I realized where I was at. I called out in repentance to God. He heard my cry. He heard my plea of repentance. And he says, I will heal you from that leanness of soul. You will experience my free love given to you because my anger is turned away. You've come back home with a heart of repentance. Know my mercy now. Know my mercy. God applies the multitude of his mercies to those who have a leanness of soul when they will return to him. 
there's another action God takes here. And that is God saves. God saves. It's mentioned many times throughout the psalm, but let me just draw your attention to verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God. Save us, O Lord our God. That is the plea. The one who has a leanness of soul, who comes back with the heart of repentance, asking for forgiveness, crying out for deliverance, that is the plea. O Lord, save me from this. And salvation is exactly what God provides to the repentant soul. Those who suffer from a leanness of soul, they come to this place of repentance and faith in Christ that they've never had before. They're rescued out of spiritual death, eternal condemnation, and placed in the family of God. He saves them. Those who are children of God, they suffer from a leanness of soul because they have willfully ignored their Heavenly Father. They have willingly chosen to ignore His wisdom or ignore His will. They sought fulfillment in the world and have been corrupted and become enslaved to the world, yet they come back with this heart of repentance, with the plea, save me from this, O Lord. That's exactly what God does. He brings salvation from the depressive and corrupt life they're dwelling in, this evil and bitter existence. He delivers them from that bitter life. He gives them freedom instead of discontentment. He brings fullness that replaces the leanness of soul. He saves them from the misery that they abide in as they rebel against Him. But He not only brings salvation, He brings restoration. See, God brings restoration. Look at the plea, verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to Your holy name, to triumph in Your praise. That's a description there that God not only saved the Israelites out of their trouble, but He restored them to their proper position before Him out from among the Gentiles to be restored where they belonged, to be able to give thanks to His holy name, to be able to triumph in His praise, this position of thanks, this position of triumph in His holiness, their rightful position. They were not just forgiven. They were not just brought out of Gentile rule, they were restored back to where they needed to be. See, it wasn't this thing where God said, okay, well, I'll forgive you, but I'm always going to remember this, and you'll always kind of be second class from here on out. I'm just not going to give you back what you had. No, he he restored them to where they needed to be. He put them back in the rightful place. My friend, when, when leanness of soul is replaced with a repentant heart, what we find is full restoration with the Lord. Jeremiah 59, or excuse me, 1519. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, if you repent, I will restore you. I will restore you. That word restore is a very important word. It's shuv in Hebrew. It means to move back to a point previously departed from. It means to return to a specific manner of life and action. It means to change back to a former association, to cause to change to a previous and preferable life, to be repaired to those things. What happens when one who has rebelled against God comes back with a cry of repentance? That one is forgiven. That one is saved out of that bitter life. 
That one is restored. God repairs what rebellion has broken. What my rebellious spirit destroyed, God repairs. He doesn't just forgive, He restores. He brings us back to where we have departed from. He brings us back to the preferable state of fellowship and communion we need to have with Him. See, it's one thing to have an old car and you just kind of fix it so it works. It's a totally different thing to restore it back to its preferable state. And that's what God says. You can rebel against me. You can run away from me. You can face the consequences of your life and things may get messed up. But here's the thing. If you come back with a true heart of repentance, I will restore you to your preferable place of communion with me. Now, that doesn't mean there's still not consequences to deal with out and around but with your stance with God, your personal interaction with Him, your communion, your fellowship. He restores that. He repairs what sin has broken. You see, the repentant will know that cry of David when he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. When you truly come back from the far country with a heart of repentance, God restores you back to where you need to be. You're not second class. You're not someone who always has something hanging over your head with God, He forgives and He restores. So you see, God has His exalted position as judge and Savior. But of all the psalmist says, only two elements deal with judging. All the rest deal with His heart of saving, redeeming, and restoring. We have a God of restoration who will welcome you back from your leanness of soul, from your rebellion, if you will cry out with a heart of repentance. But that leaves one last element to be discussed. We've seen the emaciated soul. We've seen our exalted Savior. But there's one other category of people here that we need to address, and that is the embattled supporters. The embattled supporters. You see, in the wake of a leanness of soul, in the wake of those who are spiritually sick, there are those embattled supporters who love and yearn to see the wayward one return to the Lord. There are those who are vested in the lives of a brother and sister in Christ or a family member or whoever it is, and you yearn to see them back where they need to be with God. What about you? What should be done by those who know someone who has a leanness of soul? What's our recourse in this? Well, if we look at the psalm here and we examine some of what the psalmist says, we get some little tips on what we should do. The first thing is this. We need to be honest about the situation. Be honest about the situation. If you'll notice this text as you read this psalm, especially um, in recounting the history of Israel, the psalmist does not sugarcoat anything. The reality of Israel's actions are plainly stated, honestly stated. The psalmist does not try in the least to excuse or justify the rebellion that has happened against God. There's a very honest assessment here. The psalmist says, my people rebelled against God. 
He doesn't say they got a little off track every now and then. Well, you know, it was, it was just this period of life and, well, they were some, a little bit confused. Or He said, my people rebelled against God. An honest statement about what was really happening. Not only for our benefit, but for his own. He wasn't delusional, tried to convince himself. Now, self, don't feel as bad. Don't be as worried. This may not be as bad as you think. He was honest. This is bad. There's rebellion against God. He even acknowledged his own part. You'll notice, for example, um, verse 6, he says, We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. He included himself. I've been a part of the problem. An honest assessment of here's where this person is, here's where I'm at, and here's what's really going on. My friends, when we have a loved one who's suffering from a leanness of soul, we must be honest about what's going on. And I don't mean you stand in front of the church and just tell everyone, hey, everyone, here's what's going on. I mean honest with yourself before God. Don't try to convince yourself things are not what they really are. Don't try to convince the other person the situation's really not that bad. Listen, don't lie to yourself about the gravity of rebellion against God. That never goes to a good place. But so often we are inclined to view a situation not with reality. We look at the situation and we want to convince ourselves, maybe it's not as bad as I think. It's probably not as bad as I think. Here's probably what's happening. We put on our rose-colored glasses. We put on our mom or dad goggles. We put on our grandparent goggles. You know those goggles? They don't let you see how your kid really is. You've talked to parents that wear those. Oh, my kid's the greatest. And I'm thinking, have you ever met your own kid? Come on, take the goggles off. We are naturally inclined to put on rose-colored glasses when we try to evaluate this stuff, but that doesn't happen, that doesn't help us, that doesn't give us an honest assessment. I mean, Keith, Keith Whitley understood that, right? He said, these rose-colored glasses that I'm looking through show only the beauty because they hide all the truth. That's how we respond a lot of times when we have a loved one who rebels against God. We refuse to see things for how they really are. And then we enable and press the situation on down the road more and more and more and more because we refuse to be honest about it. Listen, we cannot try to excuse, to justify, or to accommodate someone who's in rebellion against God. That just enables more rebellion. Instead of making excuses for someone who's wayward, instead of trying to justify that person's actions... What we need to do is speak truth in love. Live the truth with love. Stand for the truth in a loving manner. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, teach about this. There the Bible says we must speak the truth in love to those who have a leanness of soul in order that we might help them not be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness with deceitful plotting, but rather we might help them grow into the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ, who Jesus wants them to be. You see, we're called to speak the truth with love to help someone be 
drawn to the place Christ wants him to be to grow in the person Christ wants him to. Speak the truth with love. And speaking the truth with love often is living that truth in a loving manner. Because as we already seen last week, that person who has a leanness of soul is going to oppose the truth and oppose those who speak the truth. They may not always listen to what you say, but at least they can watch how you live. And you're going to do so with love. Why? Well, because they're already opposed to the truth. And they already want to write their own narrative. And they want that narrative to be, those people who are Jesus followers just hate me and judge me and I can't listen to them. You want to rewrite that narrative so when they say that to you, you can say, now wait a minute, whoa, 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 wait just a second. Have you seen me be hateful to you? Have you seen me treat you poorly? Give me an example of how I've sat in condemnation over you. Or have I shown you grace and love? Have I invited you into my home? Have I told you we want you here with us? Have I extended the full measure of love that I would to anybody to you? You want them to have to say, well, yeah, you have. And then you can say, but I've stayed true to the word, haven't I? And I've spoken the truth of God to you, haven't I? And I've lived the truth, haven't I? So it's not me judging or condemning. It's the truth of God that you're opposed to, not me. See, we speak the truth. We live the truth. We do it with love. We speak the truth. Why? Because it's the only thing that will set anyone free. Isn't that what Jesus taught in John 8? The truth will set you free. They don't need my opinion. They don't need what I think or what I like. They need the truth of God. So I speak the truth to them. I speak the truth. John 17, 17. Jesus again. God, your word is truth. So if I'm going to speak the truth because the truth sets people free, I speak the word of God. So as I'm sharing with those who have a leanness of soul, I try my best to remove my personal feeling and in a loving way say, but here's the truth of God. Here's what God says. I try to live the truth of God. I try to represent the truth of Scripture in my own character. I try to emulate the character of Christ. And I try to live it out. I can't let my actions and my attitudes be off-putting to that person if I want them to hear the truth when I share it. So I speak the truth. Once again, the truth is going to confront them. The truth is going to be confrontational to them. I don't have to be. They're not going to like what I say when I'm speaking the truth already. Because the truth is going to bring conviction to the leanness of soul. So you don't accommodate, you don't justify, you don't excuse, but you live consistently the truth and you speak the truth. It's a hard line to walk, not to condone, but not to reject. Christy and I have become familiar with a phrase with some of the folks we know that says, I'm sorry, but I simply cannot celebrate this part of life with you. I want to celebrate you because I love you, but these decisions I can't celebrate because of who I am in accordance to God and His Word. The person I'm called to be in Christ and pursuing His holiness, I simply can't celebrate that part of your life. 
I love you, and I want to be a part of your life, and I want you to be a part of my life. But this part, I can't celebrate that because it goes against everything I believe and stand for. So I'm not rejecting you. I just want you to know I'm sad because I can't celebrate with you in these decisions. I can't celebrate with you this part of your life, and I really wish I could. You see, I have a standard of holiness that I must maintain. And to maintain my standard of holiness, I can't accommodate that. So yeah, over here, I can be a part. But over there, I can't be a part. I can't condone. I can't celebrate. Because I have a standard of holiness that I'm called to. And in abiding in my standard of holiness, you are excluding me from being a part of this. And that's the truth. It's nothing against you personally. It's the truth I'm called to live. And if you've done this with love so that they can't throw back at you, here's why you've judged me. Here's how you've scorned me. Here's how you've cast me away. They have to accept that. Because you're abiding by a holy standard in your life that won't accommodate sin. But the flip side of that coin is this. If I am engaged in sin, I need to seek forgiveness. I need to acknowledge my sin and be forgiven. Why? Because it will be difficult for me to pray for that wayward person. It will be difficult for me to speak sound doctrine to the person with leanness of soul if I abide in unconfessed sin myself. So if I want to be this vessel of restoration for someone else, I need to be in close communion with God. So just like the psalmist acknowledged his sin, I need to be careful to acknowledge my sin, confess that sin, and walk in a closeness with God, abide in his wisdom so that I can speak the truth in love. Now how does sin creep into my life in regard to these situations? Well, sin creeps in when I begin to compromise the truth to accommodate my loved one. Well, I can overlook that. I know what the Bible says, but I'll just overlook that. I'll accommodate them and ignore the Scriptures. You know what that's called when you ignore the Scriptures? That's disobedience. That's sin. And so, so easily we slip into sin. Or I get so fed up that rather than righteous anger... I slip into sinful anger and allow sinful anger to guide my actions and my attitudes. That needs to be confessed. I need to keep a short account with God is what I'm saying. If I want to minister to someone who is in rebellion against God, I need to keep a short account with God. Because I don't need my personal sin interfering with the vessel that I could be in God's hands to minister to them. So I need to confess my sin. I need to stay close to God. I need to speak the truth in love. Here's the second thing we see in this text. Not only do I speak the truth in love, but I should stand in the gap. I should stand in the gap. Verse 23. Therefore, he said, that is God, therefore God said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. See, what was happening here, 
The Israelites had rebelled against God, complained against God so much that God said, I'm finished. I'm going to destroy them all. All except one person, Moses, stood in the breach. He stood in the gap. Moses spoke up on behalf of the Israelites. He intervened for those who had a leanness of soul and said, God, don't do it. God, show grace, show mercy. God, show your patience. God, show who you truly are by redeeming these people. You see, the people were so far away from God, God was ready to wipe them out. Had not Moses stepped in and interceded for them, that would have happened. What should I do when I know someone who has a leanness of soul? I need to step into the gap. I need to stand in that position and make intercession on their behalf. I need to step in and intervene for them. They're not crying out to God, so I'll cry out to God for them. I will step in. Just as Moses made intercession on behalf of the Israelites, what we should do is step in and faithfully intercede for that rebellious person we know. Go to God on their behalf. Faithfully pray that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction upon them, that God will be long-suffering to them, that God will continually draw upon them to pull them back. We need to pray for God's protective hand because they're not going to recognize God. We'll pray for them. We need to pray that God's Spirit would impart to us wisdom to speak the truth in love. We need to be faithfully praying, intervening on behalf of this other person who's not seeking God. So often we feel helpless. We want to do so much. There's so much we want to do in that person's life And sometimes we say, well, all I can do is pray, like that's not much. My friends, I want you to remember what God says about prayer. All I can do is pray. Maybe all you need to do is pray. James 5.16 says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We can't fail to recognize the power that comes when we address the God of all creation with our petitions. This is the God who spoke everything into existence, who picked up dust, made a man, and breathed life into him. That's who we're taking our petition to. That's who we're going before and saying, God, care for this one I love. We can only pray My friends, prayer is one of the most powerful recourses that we have, especially in this situation. Because you know, this wayward person, they may not come around to listen to the truth I want to speak. They might not come around to see the truth I want to live. They may not give me opportunity to engage them directly, but you know what they cannot avoid? The prayers I pray over them and the hand of God moving upon their life. Prayer may be the most powerful recourse we have. I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle John. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14, 15, and 16. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. Now, did you pick up on what he said right there? 
When I know someone out living in sin, I can go and speak to God on their behalf and God will grant them life because of my prayer. That's powerful. What that tells me is I can have a friend, I can have a loved one who's living in rebellion to God and I have a powerful recourse because God says I can pray for that one in sin and God will move. God will grant that one life. Now, that doesn't mean praying someone into heaven or all that. That simply means that God will be active upon that one who's in sin. God will be stirring upon that one who's in sin. God will be giving them life. That is, he's still engaged with them, watching over them. The Spirit of God is continuing to draw upon that one. God is not going to abandon them because I'm praying for them. And because I'm praying for him, God will not abandon him. God will continue to stir and be active. My friends, we need to faithfully pray for that one we know who has a leanness of soul. And as we pray, we need to recognize that God is faithful. And in his faithfulness, he understands perfectly what to do, perfectly when to do it, perfectly how to do it. So I may pray today and not see anything happen tomorrow, but I don't stop praying Because I trust God in his omniscience to know exactly what needs to be done, how it needs to be done, and the timing it needs to transpire in, so I faithfully stand in the gap every day. I continually stand in that gap knowing that God has said, I can pray for the one who's in sin, and God is going to move in their life. So we need to stand in the gap. The psalmist mentions one other thing here. Actually, two other things. The third thing is this. We need to be consistent in our faith. Be consistent in your faith when you know someone who's suffering from a leanness of soul. Because they have surrounded themselves with people who are not people of faith, who do not live a true faith, who are not consistent in faith. So we need to be consistent in our faith. Verse 3 describes how we should be. Blessed are those who keep justice, and he who does righteousness at all times. In other words, those who consistently live in their faith. It is crucial that we maintain a pursuit of holiness, that we seek to continue to grow in Christ's likeness, because we are that vessel of restoration that God may be working through. And so we need to be consistent in our faith growing in our faith, progressing in our sanctification. The worst thing we can do is to allow the rebellion of someone else to adversely affect our walk of faith. Because that moves us from a position of being useful in that restoration process. We need to stay true to our pursuit of holiness, focused on our pursuit of holiness. This isn't always easy to do. Verse 32. And they angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them, because they rebelled against his spirit, so that he spoke rashly with his lips. This is recounting an instance where Moses fell into sin. It was precipitated by the rebellion of the people. They had such leanness of soul, they were so spiritually ill. They were in such rebellion 
Their sinful complaining and, and spiritual weakness weighed upon Moses so much that in an instant of anger, Moses was to speak to a rock, and he got mad and he struck the rock. And that kept Moses out of the promised land. In a moment of anger, consumed by the rebellion of the people, he sinned. He had a moment of wavering in his consistency of faith. You see, I can tell you we need to be consistent in our walks of faith, but I'm going to tell you it's not easy. Because as we have that loved one or friend who's got a leanness of soul and they weigh upon us and we yearn for them and we interact with them, it is so easy for us to get a little sideways in our personal faith and our personal walk. It happened to Moses. We cannot allow the rebellion of other people to affect our consistent practice of faith. Our consistent pursuit of holiness. Once again, we don't compromise biblical standards. We don't act in anger. We don't turn from God in defiance saying, God, I'm mad at you because look what my loved one has gotten into. That wasn't God's doing to begin with. See, we must be steadfast in our pursuit of godliness and holiness. We must be consistent in our faith. We need to live lives that are steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we want to be the vessel God will use to draw that one back. We need to be steadfast in our faith, in our pursuit of God, in our commitment to biblical truth. We need to continue to progress in sanctification and Christ-likeness to continue to progress in our service to the Lord. The advancement of His kingdom, we need to stay true to the course. And finally, the psalmist says this, we need to be confident in God. Remain confident in God. If you have someone you care about, you have a friend, a loved one, and, and they're off in the far country, they're living in rebellion, they have a leanness of soul. This can be difficult, but the psalmist says you have to be confident in God. Remain confident in God. And he gives some, some practical tips that bolster confidence. Back to verse 1. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for he is rich, or for his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise? Blessed are those who keep justice and he who does righteousness all time. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that you have towards your people. O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. In the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the burden and the pain, we have to remain confident in God and His faithfulness, confident in God and His character, confident in God and His promises. James chapter 1 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, in the midst of such a difficulty as having someone we care about off in rebellion... We have to ask, well, do you truly believe that even in this trial of having this loved one off in the far country, is God still at work in my life? Do you believe that God is at work in the midst of such difficulties to perfect your faith, to grow you spiritually? Can you still trust God's goodness even when the actions of someone else are bringing you such pain? Can you still be confident in God? Can your faith stay strong? I want you to see what the psalmist points out 
as reasons he is confident in God, even in the face of all that has happened with Israel. First thing he says, to maintain confidence in God, I'm going to look for ways to recognize that the Lord is good. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. You see, the rebellion of my loved one does not change the goodness of God at all. God's character is not affected by our actions. God's character is perfectly unchanging. His goodness is there, whether I think it's there or not. God is good. He is supremely holy and perfect in His outpouring of goodness. His goodness is at work in my life even if I refuse to see it or the clouds of pain cover it. God is still good. And the psalmist says sometimes to be confident in God, I need to learn to recognize, wait a minute, God is good to me. I can see his goodness here and here and here. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves, God hasn't stopped being a good heavenly father just because I'm experiencing difficulty of this loved one. God is still a good heavenly father. Maybe my perspective just isn't where it needs to be. Sometimes losing that perspective shakes our confidence in God. We focus on his mercy. He goes on. His mercy endures forever. To maintain a confidence in God, it helps to deliberately train myself to focus on how God is merciful in my life and the outpouring of mercy in my life. Instead of allowing my mind to run away in dread, I need to make myself think about the faithfulness of God and how he's proven himself faithful and the realities of his mercy that are displayed day by day in my life. If I want to help myself maintain a confidence in God, I remember these mighty works. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise? Sometimes when I'm waning a little bit in my confidence in God, it helps to stop and remember all the mighty acts I've seen God do. All the mighty acts I know God has done. That's why Joshua, when the children of Israel were passing through the Jordan River where God had stopped the waters, he told the tribes, each one, to get a man to carry rocks out of the riverbed and then build a monument so they can always look back and remember the mighty hand of God. Think back when you're doubting about what God has done and let that boisture confidence in God. Sometimes we need to think back on what we've seen God do and how we've experienced God's power. We need to think back on the testimonies of God's faithfulness, why it bolsters our confidence. I know one pastor who he keeps a notebook, and all the notebook is is he writes down, here's the mighty thing I saw God do. It's just a notebook full because he says sometimes he needs to go back and remind himself, look what God can do. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves, here's what God can do. Another thing the psalmist says helps bolster confidence in God is remembering the blessedness that comes in the closeness of God. When we abide in his presence. Look at the description of one who abides in his presence. Verse 3, blessed are those who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times. That describes someone who is living righteously before God, walking in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Someone who has a closeness with God. In God's presence, being strengthened with the peace that only God can bring. That peace that guards our hearts and our minds. As I'm faithfully standing in the gap and praying for this one I love, I need to remind myself 
of the blessedness of God's presence and abide in His presence so that I'm strengthened in His presence. Another thing I can do to help my confidence in God is to boldly call out to the Lord and mention my need. It's not selfish to mention your need before God. Verse 4, remember me, O Lord, with the favor, favor you have towards your people. Oh, visit me with your salvation that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory in your inheritance. When you're standing in the gap for your loved one, take time to mention your needs before the Lord as well. Honestly, God, here's where I'm at. And I'm discouraged. And God, I'm just not, I'm just not sure right now. God, I'm kind of doubting. Are you faithful in this? Take your needs before God, honestly. Be confident enough in God to at least take your burden to Him and say, God, here's what I'm feeling. God, here's what I'm experiencing. Jesus taught His disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. That's a personal prayer for personal provision over a personal need. God, here's where I'm at and here's what I need. You see, we can be confident in God to openly express ourselves and go to Him with these things. When I do that, what I do is I acknowledge, I understand that it's God who meets my needs, and I acknowledge that I have enough confidence in God to take my needs to Him. I'm acknowledging that my faith is in Him, and I'm confident enough to trust Him to move. And then the psalmist says, look, I want to maintain confidence in God, so here's what I do. I maintain a hope that God will bring me to the place where I rejoice in gladness. Verse 5 that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. He says, you know what? I'm confident in God because I have a hope that God's going to come through. I'm confident in God because I have this hope within me that I'll be at this place of rejoicing and gladness one day. A confidence in God that the circumstances of life will not affect that the actions of others will not steal away. A joy that will be mine in God. This inward joy that comes from a living hope I have. It's been imparted to me, Peter says, through the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been, been, I have been, been gotten into a living hope. Born into a living hope that cannot be diminished. That cannot be taken away through the work of Christ. Those with a leanness of soul, are they going to weigh heavy upon you? Yes. Are you going to experience pain? Yes. It's going to be difficult? Yes. But confidence in God says, I have a living hope and a living Savior who can do all things, and He will bring me to the place of rejoicing and gladness in His time. I trust Him for that. So here we are today. And I wonder... If any of us have a leanness of soul, if any of us are standing in opposition to God, facing the fruits of our own rebellion, and God is simply waiting for our cry so that He can respond with salvation and restoration, the outpouring of His mercy. Well, if that's any of us, it's just a word away. God, that cry of desperation. It could be that some of us 
know people with a leanness of soul. In fact, let's not be foolish. I know some of you know people with a leanness of soul. Let me encourage you to stay confident in God and stand in the gap. Stand in the gap and faithfully pray that God will act on their behalf because of your prayers. Pray that God gives you the wisdom to speak and live the truth with love before them.